good morning, everyone. Uh, we've talked about Regen several times this morning. I'm going to finish it up uh, because I want to give you uh, just an encouragement for any of those who are last-minute consideration of uh, being involved this year. Because I think some of uh, what you consider, at least I know I did when, before I did Regen the first time, it was a fearful intimidation of uh, opening up my life, of 10 months of discipleship, and uh, I want to flip the script for you this morning. I want you to, instead of a fearful intimidation, I want you to have an eager anticipation. First of all, let me show you the leaders that are involved. These are a group of the women. It's not all of them, but it is a group of women. And then on the next slide, there's a group of men, which other than the bald guy there on on the right, uh, it's a great group of men. Um, But just the fact that you are able to spend time with people like this, in my opinion, is worth being involved in Regen. Because these are some godly men and women who truly love the Lord and who truly love you. And I think it's an invitation to spend some time with people like this. But I've been uh, listening to uh, Chuck Swindoll podcast, one of my all-time favorites. And he's been talking about the work of the apostles, the life of the apostles after Pentecost. And he's gone back to describe who they were before Pentecost. They were fearful. They were intimidated. They fled for their life. They denied even knowing Jesus until Pentecost. And then they became bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. Their life was so transformed, you could hardly believe they were the same people. I tell you that because I believe that's what Regen has the ability to do when you surrender your heart and life to him. You're not the same person. In fact, if you'll look at the pictures that follow um, this is from our commencement last year. And these are pictures of people who've gone through Regen, and they're not the same as they were before. Those are going really fast, aren't they? <laughs> but what I want you to be able to appreciate is that there's a joy, there's a, 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 just a contentment that comes from having had a deep encounter with the living Christ in the company of people who love him and love you just as you are. And so if you've given any last-minute consideration, I'm teaching on Tuesday when we start. I would invite you to come. Even if you haven't signed up, just come. See what it's like, and then decide after that if you want to be involved this year, okay? The other thing I want to mention to you, hopefully you noticed this when the Hebrews wall out in the foyer. Anybody notice the big wall of Hebrews out in the foyer? Okay, we've never done anything like this before, but we thought it would be a fun way to be interactive with God's Word as we get back into our study of Hebrews. So like many of you do in your Bible, we're inviting you to get one of those markers up there and underline words and and highlight or make little comments out to the side. Uh, We've talked about how God's Word is living and active, so how has it made an impact on you? When you hear something and learn something, what, what does it impress upon you that you can then communicate on that wall? Because I can assure you something that has impacted you will undoubtedly have an impact on someone else when you communicate those truths. And so let's fill that thing up. As the year goes on and as we continue through uh, our study of Hebrews in the fall, just take time to underline, to make comments, and let's, let's let God's Word come alive as we enter into Hebrews together. 
And so with that being said, we're going to jump back into where we left off last in Hebrews in the spring, which I don't know about you, it feels like forever ago, right? And so it's going to be a bit of a challenge to kind of get back in after having been out for so long, and even more of a challenge if you've been attending this summer and didn't get the first half of Hebrews, right? And so what I'm going to try to do this morning is bring us all up to speed so that we can all enter back in uh, together. So, as a reminder, you you may recall that the letter of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians who were living in Rome undergoing severe persecution. One of the primary reasons is because the, the ruler of that time, Nero, blamed the Christians for a destructive fire that had taken place in Rome. They didn't like this growing community of followers of Jesus, and so they did everything they could to quiet them down. And so as a result, many were arrested, wrongly thrown in jail, and many innocent people lost their lives. They were killed because of their faith. So there was a temptation for these Jewish Christians who were receiving this letter. There's a temptation for them to enter back into their Jewish communities. And the reason is, is because the Jewish communities during that time in Rome's history were protected by Roman law. And so, if they could blend back into Jewish society, they would be safe. But they would only remain safe if they were willing to reject their faith in Jesus Christ. Because the the persecution they would receive from the Hebrews having confessed to be a Christian would be much, much worse. And so, because of that, the the writer of Hebrews is encouraging his audience and urging them to hold fast to their faith. He's reminding them that, that Jesus is worthy of their devotion, no matter what the cost may be. He's telling them that he laid down his life for them. So is there any cost too great for him? And I think it's just as important for you and I today to consider that same question. Is there any cost too great for him? Because here's the reality, and we all know this. We are living in an an increasingly anti-Christian culture where our beliefs are repeatedly colliding with social norms. And it's just as easy. Okay, don't miss this. It's just as easy. We are just as tempted to compromise our convictions in order to just blend in. So is he worth it? Is Jesus worthy of our devotion no matter what? what the cost. Now, until we understand, and I believe this is true, until we understand the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished, we can't answer that question honestly. So I think the writer of Hebrews is writing to to help us appreciate the supremacy of Christ and the magnitude of his sacrifice. And he does this, as we've noticed, in large part by making repeated connections to Old Testament promises that then become fulfilled in in New Testament realities. 
which means for us to understand, we need to put on our Hebrew hats this morning, okay? We need to kind of enter into a different culture than our own. Enter into the, the very worship experience of ancient Israel. And let me assure you, it was a, an experience that would have filled your senses because of what you saw and how it made you feel. The sacrifices were being offered. What you heard in the, in the bleeding of the, the goats and the, and the sheep and in the prayers of the priests. What you smelled when those sacrifices were offered as, as burnt offerings and when you smelled the, the smell of incense that covered the air. This whole system, this whole worship experience was intended to be moving and graphic. And until we understand the very depths of its divinely intended meaning, we cannot fully appreciate the sacrifice of our Savior. And so let's ask him. Let's ask him this morning to deepen our understanding to enter into a world that is very different than our own, but to appreciate the goodness of who he is and the magnitude of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Let's do that together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we need you to open our eyes to see things that are so far outside of our normal, everyday experience. We cannot grasp them on our own. This has to be a spirit-empowered illumination of your divinely revealed truths that transforms our life. And so, Lord, we ask that. We invite you to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, to help us experience the, the full breadth and depth of your great love for us. In your kindness and in your mercy, and for your glory, would you let it be? We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, you can go ahead and turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. But before we jump into our passage this morning, I want to remind us again how the author has led us to this point. Because earlier in chapter 9, he took us on a tour. I don't know if you remember that, but, but he took us on a tour of the tabernacle, which is the very core of the worship experience for the nation of Israel. He walked us past that sacrificial altar into the place that was called the holy place. And here's where he pointed out items that would be seen in this holy place where the priests ministered on behalf of the people, that golden lampstand. Then he walked us over to that table of sacred bread. And while you stood inside this holy place, you would have smelled the incense being burned on the altar in front of the curtain. And then he took us to the curtain. And he pulls back the curtain so that we could see the very holy of holies, the place where God's glory dwelled. And we would have been moved by the appearance of the Ark of the Covenant laden in gold and the wings of the cherubim which overstretched that altar and covered the mercy seat, the place where the high priest would sprinkle the atoning sacrificing of that blood that was shed on behalf of the people. 
But the author explains that, that all of this experience pointed to something much, much deeper. It was an earthly pattern of, of, a, of a heavenly reality that Jesus came to fulfill. And so let's pick up again in verse 11. I'm going to back up a little bit before we get into our passage and let's remind ourselves of where we're going. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God and for this reason. He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. I want to pause there to help us see that the, that the author's main point as we enter into this section is that Jesus is doing something new. And what he's doing here is far greater than anything that has ever been done before. It says that he is the, the mediator of a new covenant. Something far superior than the old covenant. But but I think it's important for us to understand what, what a mediator really is in this context. Because today, when we hear that word mediator, we might think of an unbiased third party who helps two opposing sides come to some place of agreement. And in order to do so, there's usually some level of negotiation, some give and take to find some middle ground, right? But that's not what Jesus does. Because when it comes to our sin, there is no middle ground. Colossians 1.21 is clear. It says, we were alienated from God and hostile towards him. Romans 5.10 reminds us that apart from Christ, we were enemies of God. So we need to understand that apart from Christ, we weren't trying to negotiate. We wanted to rule our lives selfishly determining what is right and wrong for ourselves, choosing our own identity, determining our own moral boundaries. It's my life. It's my choice. I should do what I want to do, and nobody, including God, has the right to tell me differently. That's what the world tells us. That's what we told ourselves apart from Christ. Because our salvation is not the result of a negotiation. We can't argue our case. In fact, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or even meet Him halfway. 
Instead, our God is holy. We sang about that this morning. He is holy and he is just. He is righteous. And we bear the guilt of our sin. You said it this morning, Alex. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's the verdict. And Jesus affirms that all of this is true. So as our mediator, he didn't come to try to convince God of something differently. In fact, he agrees. He agrees that our sin deserves the wrath of God's judgment. And he becomes our mediator by taking that judgment upon himself. We are reconciled to God through his death not through diplomacy. The only give and take in our salvation is Jesus taking all our sins upon himself and giving us the gift of eternal life through faith and trust in him. That's it. In fact, verse 17 says in our passage, the covenant is only valid when men are dead. It says in verse 16, for where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, this may seem a little bit odd unless you think of a covenant like a will. In Greek, those are actually the, it's the same word, will and covenant. It's the same Greek word. And so we know from our experience that relates a little more to us, right? That, that a will lays out the terms of what happens to someone after they die, right? It establishes the inheritance that will then be passed down to their heirs. But the will is only valid when that person dies, right? That's what this is trying to tell us. That's when it's activated. And in the same way, Jesus came to fulfill as a mediator. He came to fulfill the new covenant, which in the very same way as a divine will, that promise of eternal inheritance is only valid when Jesus dies. That's the only way the new covenant is possible. You see that? Look at how he continues in verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry in the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And here's where we're going to need to put our Hebrew hats on and enter into that cultural experience of worship. Because what he does here is the author goes back to the old covenant promises of God, the old covenant practice of worship, a worship that was centered on sacrifice and the shedding of blood. In fact, over the thousand plus years of the old covenant, there were millions upon millions of sacrifices that were made. And these verses are going to take us back to the very beginning, the very moment when Moses stood before the people and introduced the demands of this, for them, new, but it was the old covenant promise of God. 
And then it ended with a dedication ceremony that kind of sealed that promise for His people. And I want you to imagine being present there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay? You're going to have to use your sanctified imaginations here, but please go with me, okay? I want you to imagine having been invited by Moses, you and your family, to gather together with all the nation of Israel at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai. And he warns you that you can gather to a certain point, but do not approach the mountain or you will certainly die. Because he explains that God will be present and he will make himself known. And almost as if those words were being spoken, all of a sudden you saw this dark, ominous cloud descend from the sky on top of this mountain and down towards the earth. And as it did, you could hear thunder crashing. You could see lightning everywhere. There there was smoke, and you could hear the sound of trumpets. And even the earth began to shake. And so whatever eager anticipation you had before you walked up to this place, you were now overwhelmed by fear. And in the midst of this cacophony of chaos, you heard the voice of God out loud, and it almost surrounded you as he one by one recites the Ten Commandments, beginning with, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you must have no other gods before me. When he is done reciting those commandments, I can assure you without any shadow of doubt that you and I and everyone there would have been pierced through the heart. Because in that small list of just 10 laws, it exposed the undeniable reality of our sin. So much so that you begged Moses to speak instead of God lest you die. And he agrees. And he continues to go through the old covenant given by God to the nation of Israel as his people. And then, at the close of that experience, there's a dedication ceremony. And listen to what Moses says, beginning in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. He says, Then Moses came and recounted to all the people all the words of the Lord. And all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half, the blood, he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it. In the hearing of the people, they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with, with all these words.
So imagine. Imagine having been there, experiencing the very presence of God. Imagine seeing the animals marched up to the front. Imagine them being sacrificed so that their blood is spilled to the ground, and as it pours out, so does the life of that animal. Then Moses takes that blood, and he mops it up, and he goes among the people, and he sprinkles it on you. And those crimson stains hit your face. They fall on your arms. And they remind you of the seriousness of sin and your undeniable guilt. They display the cost of forgiveness and the requirement of a sacrifice. Because as we see in our passage in verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A righteous and holy God cannot just turn and look the other way. There's a penalty, a very severe price for the payment of sin. Substituting the blood of an innocent for the life of the guilty. And according to the old covenant, this must be practiced over and over and over again. And the reason was these Old Testament sacrifices were a reminder of sin and they had no power to remove it. In other words, they didn't provide a solution. They only exposed a need. It was a temporary provision, a very graphic display of a divine answer. Let's see how he reveals that in the next verses in our passage, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than what the old covenant did. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, Nor was it that he would offer himself often, over and over again, as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year, with a blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. The old covenant graphically displays the penalty of sin. The new covenant beautifully reveals the payment of sin. Which means everything, to the letter, everything in that old sacrificial system points to Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist declared, this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The the tabernacle and and all its furnishings were a copy. It It was a pattern of a heavenly reality. 
Because instead of entering this earthly temple made by human hands, it says that Jesus enters into the very presence of God. Not through the blood of an animal, but through his own blood shed on the cross. And the author explains how this blood purifies people of faith, allowing them who who trust in Christ to actually enter into the presence of God themselves. Approaching, as we see in the book of Hebrews already, the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Not, Not the terrifying fear that was witnessed on Mount Sinai. Please understand the difference. This is completely different than what they experienced. And here's why. Because their response was a right response to the guilt of their sin in the presence of a holy God. But when Jesus, our Savior, takes the guilt of our sin upon himself, then there is no reason for us to fear. We enter to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. In other words, new covenant salvation rescues us from old covenant condemnation. Do you get that? New covenant salvation rescues us from old covenant condemnation. As John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, As he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. I believe this is a fellowship between us and God. In the blood of Jesus Christ, here it is, get this, cleanses us from all sin. Our cleansing is complete because his sacrifice was final. And so if you're in Christ and you're doubting your salvation, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at yourself and whether you deserve that instead of looking at the cross and seeing what he's done to completely cleanse you of all sin so that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's the reason Jesus said on the cross, it is what? Finished. It's complete. It's done The new covenant requirement has been fulfilled. And here's the good news. That means the promise of the eternal inheritance has now been activated for all who believe. So we see in verse 26, at the consummation of the age, this is another way of just saying at just the right time, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For it is appointed for all All, for everyone, no exceptions, to die once. And then all, everyone, no exceptions, to face judgment. We talked about this last week, didn't we? No one likes to talk about judgment. But boom, there it is again. It's appointed for everyone to die once. And then comes judgment. Because we all know, despite all the advances in society, no one has been able to overcome the reality of our inevitable 
death. 100% effective in 100% of the people. In, in the same way, 100% of the people, 100% of the time, will stand before the judgment throne of God. And I don't know about you, I'll be honest, if, if someone is not a Christian, to me, I think this would be incredibly terrifying. I'm, I'm talking Mount Sinai 2.0, okay? Because, and here's why, the guilt of your sin, just like for them, will be undeniable. And the eternal punishment, unavoidable. And if you're thinking, well, you know, let's be easy here, right? Number one, I'm not even sure there is a God, and I definitely don't think there's going to be a judgment. I mean, after all, people like Stephen Hawking says that our brain is really just a computer, just a really big, impressive computer, and that one day the computer's going to die, and, well, that's it. Just a computer. No beauty. No bravery. No hope. No love. Just a computer. Which tells me life, if that's true, has no meaning at all. Personally, that would make me fear death more. Seeing death as an end to an otherwise meaningless way of life, what a horrible way to live and a terrifying way to die. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, your life is filled with purpose and your death is an introduction to a promised inheritance of eternal life. And here's why. Because as you stand before the judgment seat of God, you are declared righteous because of the judgment that was taken on your behalf at the cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. All of it. All of it. That's why verse 28 says, we eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ, knowing that he's promised and he's faithful to his promises. He will appear a second time, but this time without reference to sin, because your sin has been dealt with on the cross. And if you put your trust in Christ, you become a member of the new covenant family of God. An heir of God. Think about that. An heir of God and co-heirs with Christ. If that's what you believe, if that's truly what you believe, how does that not transform how you live? Explain that to me. So, so let me give you this question in closing. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Because if you are eagerly awaiting Christ's return, it should be undeniable in your life. Undeniable. For example, there should be a life that is marked by joyful gratitude. Every day. Despite the circumstances that are going around us, every day we should be reminded of God's love. 
We can see it when we open his word. We can see it when we watch what's happening in his creation. Don't miss it. Whether it's as simple as the change of the leaves as we go from summer to fall or the the rain that we so desperately need soaking into the ground, where does that come from? Every good thing and every perfect gift comes from the one who loves us. Even when we confess our sin, even when we confess our sin, we are reminded of God's faithful forgiveness. We should be marked by joyful gratitude. Along with, I believe, daily devotion. Because seeking to grow in your faith is what makes you long to be in God's presence. That's why we talk about it. Listen, take time. Be in the presence of Jesus. Open your word. Listen to the Spirit of God. Speak into your life. It's living and it's active. Linger and don't be in a hurry to leave. And when that becomes a practice in your life, you will long for his return. I promise you. Because even the first fruits of the Spirit that is, is present within you groans for something more. Romans 8.23 says, And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And here's why. Waiting eagerly. Come, Lord Jesus, come. For our adoption is sons. The redemption of our body. Joyful gratitude. Daily devotion. And then finally, I believe your life will be marked by a servant's heart. Because here's the reality. If we're living for ourselves, we're not eager for Jesus' return. In fact, the truth be known, we may not even think about it. We're too busy trying to find comfort and security in what we control in this world. But if our hope is not in this world, if this is not our home, if this is just temporary and we're here for a purpose, then it changes everything. Now, we can give our life away. We, we can consider the needs of others as more important than our own. That can become our lifestyle with gratitude and joy. Remember, is he worth it? Is there any amount of devotion that is not worthy of his sacrifice that he's made on your behalf? Joyful gratitude. Daily devotion. And a servant's heart. When we eagerly await the Lord's return, that's what we'll see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, the power of your spirit, the truth that penetrates deeply even in ways that are beyond our cultural context that we can, can experience at some level the depth of what you instituted in the old covenant law that points to the new covenant promise that shows us the, the sacrifice graphically displaying the, the blood that was shed of an innocent animal. But it was pointing to something so much deeper, the blood of an innocent Savior who gave His life for our sins so that when we die, and we will, 
And we stand before the judgment seat of God, and we will. We stand innocent and righteous, having been cleansed by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we know in that truth that it transforms how we live. This world is not our home. We belong to you, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing. Well, I sure hope and pray that echoes in your mind over and over again. It was finished on the cross. One sacrifice for all sin, for all who believe, for all time. So there's a theologian whose name I can't remember. But I know that he said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. So as you go throughout your week this week, and as you consider your day, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. The one who sacrificed shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want you to allow that to, to, to wash over you inviting you into the very presence of God with confidence because you have been made right in his eyes. Amen? Lord, thank you for this time this morning. We are excited to be back in Hebrews and seeing the truths uh, put on display, literally, of your goodness and your kindness, your mercy and your grace. Lord, allow these truths to wash over our hearts and our minds so that it impacts how we live day in and day out. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.